From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Hamish McDonald. My name is Alicia Garza, and I'm one of the co-creators of the Black Lives Matter Network. When I was growing up, I wanted to be an architect. When Alicia Garza penned a Facebook post in 2013 called A Love Letter to Black People, she could never have imagined the impact it would have. Shaken by a court's decision to acquit George Zimmerman over the shooting death of Trayvon Martin, she wrote, Black people, I love you. I love us. Our lives matter. From there, the hashtag Black Lives Matter was born. And then a social movement. It is a world away from the life she had growing up with her mother, stepfather and brother, where they ran an antique shop in Marin County in San Francisco. Standing firmly in the national spotlight today in a divided America, she is a leading voice in what's widely viewed as America's new civil rights movement. Alicia Garza, sounds like a pretty charmed life growing up. It was interesting, for sure. I was one of a few black families uh, in a predominantly uh, wealthy community. And it really kind of mirrored San Francisco, right? We always call San Francisco a tale of two cities. So you have the city that tourists like to come to, and then you have the working class part of the city where it keeps the rest of the city running. And Marin County was no different. And I really lived in both worlds. When I was growing up in the early part of my life, I lived with my mother and my uncle. And my mom and my uncle tag-teamed in terms of taking care of me. So my mom worked several jobs during the day, and my uncle worked at night. And when my mom met my stepfather, they created a business together. And for at least a decade, they were struggling to make ends meet. Um, And then they caught a break, and we lived a very different life. And so my growing up experience is really a tale of two cities or a tale of two worlds. And your mother ended up with a Jewish man. She did. And you did too? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) But I've heard you refer to yourself as a cultural Jew. Well, we grew up in a way in which my dad was also kind of culturally Jewish. He grew up uh, with much more tradition in his life, but um, was a bit of a rebel himself, right? And so uh, for me coming up, uh, once my mother and stepfather got married, uh, we did basic holidays, Hanukkah mostly. Uh, And then in my school district, we had a lot of Jewish families. And so we had Jewish holidays off. So that was cool because then I could be at home. But we weren't (laughs) doing religious things. We were just hanging out at home. Uh, So, you know, it wasn't very orthodox, but certainly I had traditions in my life that um, come from Judaism. And so that's why I identify as culturally Jewish. It struck me, though, reading about this part of your life is that for someone that thinks a lot and spends a lot of time talking about identity, for you at a very, very early stage, there was a question about identity that you had to confront. Certainly. I mean, I think for me, my personal experience is that growing up in a community where you're one of the only uh, really forces you to define yourself and to be okay with defining yourself. I certainly had an unorthodox growing up, and it helped me to understand a few things. One, uh, how powerful labels and identities are. 
And two, how powerful it is to feel like you have agency over the way that you define yourself and to feel like that's respected in the community that you're a part of. Are you saying you understood this at an intellectual level at that age? And at a, at a kind of like a spiritual level. I mean, being one of, you know, a handful of black students in a school makes you have to grapple with how comfortable do I feel with this? And, and how comfortable were you? What was the experience? Tell me about it. You know, I'm somebody who grew up loving Prince. And if you know <laughs> Prince, uh, you know Prince really didn't care what anybody thought of him. And I think that really helped me, right? It really helped me to be firm in what I called just being weird. I was just myself, and I felt like if I couldn't do that, then, you know, it wasn't worth doing. You talk about there being very obvious differences between you and the other kids in the in the environment where you were growing up. Were there other differences? I mean, were you a different kind of kid? Uh, I was the kid that you could find locked in the bathroom with a book. I was the kid who really enjoyed my own company, not because I was uncomfortable around other people, but because I really just enjoy my own company. I grew up um, for many years without a sibling. And I was the kid who was a part of many different social groups. Uh, I was you know, friends with kids who were quote unquote popular, and I was friends with kids who were outcasts. Um, so that's really been a staple in my life and how I've grown up. Tell me about the antique shop that your mother and your stepfather ran. Are you out the back mucking around? Paint us a picture. <laughs> so interesting. So antique dealers are their own culture, they're their own community. Actually, the story is that my father, my stepfather, was left a bunch of things from his grandmother when she passed away. And um, my stepfather, my dad, was going through a rough time when he met my mom and they were trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And he had all of these things that he knew were probably worth something. Uh, and he grew it into a business. So the initial part of it was literally being at flea markets. I remember growing up, um, we would pack up the car and I would be in the back sandwiched in between like a folding table and, you know, some boxes of things. And we would drive out to the flea market in Marin City and we would unload and they would set up these tables and it would still be dark out. And I would be kind of like looking around like, what's going on? They did that for a while and then they um, started to really get to know the business. And so they grew their business that way. It wasn't until my teenage years that they started to utilize me. And, of course, when I graduated from college and was broke and, you know, needed to not live at home, my parents were like, okay, well, we'll help you out. And in return, you're going to work off your debt to us in the antique store. So you've shifted some, some vintage goods in your time. I have. I was the kid who brought a bayonet from the Revolutionary War to show and tell at school. Um, now you can't do that, right? You would spend a lot of time in jail, but back in the day. This all sounds actually lovely, you know, a wonderful way to grow up. And I know you mentioned this sort of tale of two cities that exist in San Francisco. At what point are you aware of race as an issue in America? Oh, immediately. You know, I grew up for the first part of my life in a community called San Rafael, which today and then was predominantly working class, black and brown people. It was very apparent to me all the time that, you know, the first part of my life, I didn't grow up around a lot of white people. 
Uh, when my mom met my dad, his family, of course, was all white. And I was kind of like, yo, this is totally different. <laughs> um, was there some resistance? No, I mean, I was a kid. And so there's a way in which I think adults give kids a pass up into a certain age. And for girls, I think it's really different, too. Uh, but I was certainly aware. And uh, I remember being in fifth grade and having a teacher ask me why my palms were so much lighter than the rest of my skin, which right. I thought was a really bizarre question. And this I is never a white teacher? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, but I remember that, right? I remember being in middle school and I came home and my mom said that someone had called and said that they suspected me of smoking marijuana in the bathroom. And at this time in my life, I mean, I think I was like 12. I don't even think I knew what that was. But being one of like four or five black kids, um, it became a rumor that had currency. I remember being in high school and uh, feeling really uncomfortable being singled out as black. And there weren't that many black students. And so, you know, would always get asked to say something at the Martin Luther King Festival. And I never wanted to do it. Because I was just like already so, I mean, high school is a painful time for most people. You know, you don't want to be different, right? And in that way, I felt really uncomfortable um, being singled out. So there was a kind of rejection of your blackness in a way. A rejection of the way it was being defined for me. Um, I've, I've never felt ashamed of being black but there's a way in which blackness gets defined outside of black people that is offensive and uncomfortable. Is this the sort of respectability politics thing? It's respectability and it's also stereotypes and misunderstanding. So people wanting to touch my hair all the time, wanting to know if it was the same texture as theirs or if I washed it, right? It's like things that just make you feel things that make you feel like you're an alien or something's wrong with you. Um, which is really different than people being curious about your background or curious about your traditions. Um, the the questioning comes from a set of stereotypes that are very dangerous. Uh, it wasn't until I went to college that I started to understand what was underneath that. In high school, I had a deep discomfort, but I didn't know, I couldn't understand where it was coming from. Uh, and it wasn't until I got to college that I was like, oh, this is much bigger than my little community that nobody ever heard of. This is a societal issue. Were you sort of aware as a teenager of the bigger picture of race in America? I think I was more aware of class than I was of race in terms of the bigger picture. So in the first part of my life, I went to a school that mostly had black and brown kids. Uh, second part of my life, it was mostly white. You know, the school that I went to prior, you know, didn't have as many resources. Uh, the school that I went to afterwards, you know, had big soccer fields and, you know, everybody went to college. It wasn't even a question whether or not you would attend college after high school. Uh, everybody had computers. We had multiple computers. Um, I was much more aware of class, I think, than I was of race, but still was very aware of the fact that there were two different experiences that were embodied within me as one person that I was constantly trying to navigate. So, age 23, you tell your family that you're queer? Yeah. Tell me about that. Oh, that was funny. 
I, I mean, again, it, it was a result of um, just doing me, right? And uh, I guess the Was way, it a sit-down conversation? No. It was a – I showed up with my current partner who I've been with for 13 years now. And I was like, hey, this is my boo, and I hope you're cool with that. And if you're not, that's kind of your problem. And my parents were like, oh, oh, my. They, okay. They had no hint of it before? No idea. Okay, wow. No idea. Um, so tell us about your, your boo. As My you- <laughs> boo. <laughs> we met in 2003 in a program that I did. They were a trainer for the program, and I was an intern. So I'd come to the program to do an internship that was uh, a summer program that taught you how to organize. And, uh, you know, my partner was the trainer. And at the time, we were both in different relationships, really clicked as soon as we met. It was almost like, you know, my long-lost sibling or something. And um, a few years later, decided to give it a go. What was the connection, though? We just think similarly about the world. We enjoy the same things. We think the same things are stupid. (laughs) We, you know, the thing that I love about Malachi is... Their heart is so big. It's so big. It encompasses everybody. Me, I feel like I, you know, I try. <laughs> I try to be as good of a person as Malachi. Uh, but, I, you know, I can be a little critical. I can be like, ugh, this, I, this is what I'm not going to do. And Malachi is like, let's figure it out, right? Uh, Malachi is somebody who would give you the shirt off their back if you asked for it, even if it was cold outside, even if it was raining, if it was going to make them uncomfortable in some way. They would just think about it as being for a greater good. I'm not as good of a person as he is, for sure. So how does Malachi define their identity? So Malachi's identity, um, as they define it, is um, however you see them. Okay. As long as it's respectful. Okay. So just explain that. You know, this is a world that I think is so unfamiliar to so many people. Sure. Explain that. So my partner identifies as trans and... um, Essentially, people are always trying to figure out, okay, but what gender are you, right? Like, do I call you he? Do I call you she? And they're like, well, how do you see me? In big, open-minded America, is that still a challenge? It's a huge challenge, and America is not that (laughs) open-minded. It is big. Um, What is clear is that gender is something that is an organizing principle, And in America in particular, gender really dictates your life chances. I talk about this a lot in terms of my own upbringing that, you know, as a girl or as a woman, I was expected to do very particular things. At times when there was conflict in my family, it was around me not being willing to be boxed into this, you must do this because you are this. And I think it's the same with people who are gender fluid or who just have a deeper consciousness around gender and um, that it is really about our self-definition of who we are, how we feel, and that most of us just want to be respected in that. Why is that such a challenge to so many sectors of the community, do you think? Uh, you know, For many, people would say, well, a woman's role, right, is to tend to the house. A woman's role is to caretake, to nurture. Um, And the man's role is to be aggressive and to bring home the bacon, make the money. 
for so many of us, even though we live with those stereotypes, that's not actually how we live. Okay. Um, but certainly when we look at our economy, right, our economy is gendered. Uh, so it's rare that you will see, for example, uh, male domestic workers. Why? Because work inside of the home is seen as female work. Uh, it's also rare that you will see women uh, heading major companies, even though, you know, you have the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world. Uh, the reality is that running a company is seen as a man's job. Uh, and so those are organizing principles that determine the outcomes of our lives. I want to get to a really important moment in your life, the moment that you wrote a, a Facebook post. But I need to understand the point at which you felt sort of activated as a citizen on the causes that you feel activated on. How and when did that happen? You know, I came up at a time when the Berlin Wall fell. Um, I came up at a time when there was an extreme unrest uh, as it related to uh, police activity in black communities. I came up during the time of Rodney King. Uh, I came up during the time of OJ, right? Like those are all things that sh have shaped my consciousness. And largely the way that I became aware of all those things was through popular culture. Um, and so I think for me, consciousness-wise and how I got interested in social justice is really the way that I've been politicized throughout my life and being brought up at a very particular time in history. These artists in these moments speak to everyone, right? Mm -hmm. And not everyone has that same reaction. So what is it about you that moved you into that territory of someone that thought through, okay, this is what I think. This is how I'm going to communicate it. Mm -hmm. This is the sort of stage or the platform upon which I'm going to say it. Mm -hmm. And actually, I also don't mind if people really push back because I don't fit what they think <laughs> is the picture of the person that should be doing this. I think it was an evolution of things, honestly. Uh, I wish I could say that I woke up one day and was like, okay, here's the deal. Here's how it's going to be. Uh, but that's not how it went. But was it kind of university life and developing this lexicon around analyzing and interpreting this stuff? I think it's a combination of my life experiences and um, making sense of those life experiences through some of the really incredible theoretical work that folks have done. And then also my experience organizing in communities and talking to people who had experiences like mine and unlike mine mm. and trying to get people involved in becoming a part of the change that we also desperately want. You were studying anthropology and sociology. Were there particular theorists that you read that had an impact? Well, you know, Anthropology is a really interesting field. It's also very outdated. Um, and so I, I would say that I got politicized on how outdated it was. Um, growing up as the child of an antiques dealer, uh, you realize how silly uh, people's descriptions of other cultures are, especially when you hold something in your hands that represents something for someone else. When you hold something in your hands that is so beautiful and creative and that is like spiritual in a way, and then you read about, 
you know, somebody's culture in a book and you're like, those things don't match, right? And that's politicizing. Uh, sociology, really similar. Um, I think for me personally, sociology is a way to understand human behavior. Uh, and it, like every other field, has many schools of thought. And uh, part of what I think sociology did for me was to figure out what is my school of thought around understanding why people behave the way that they do. Uh, and then, of course, being involved in activism at the same time that I'm being trained, right, in these very particular schools uh, really forces you to figure out what you think. Um, one thing I do know is that you can't take theory out into the real world and expect that it's going to go exactly like that. And if organizing has taught me anything, it's that people are incredibly complex. We change from one day to the next, uh, but that there are some things that unify us, like a deep yearning to be understood, to be seen, uh, a deep yearning and need to be held and taken care of, um, and a yearning to be connected to other people. So July 2013, you're sitting in a bar with a friend drinking and you're watching the news on a TV screen. That's right. What's the news and how do you react? Well, that entire day, I mean, we'd all been following the George Zimmerman case. Uh, and those of us, again, who pay attention to popular culture, who, you know, in some ways are kind of rudimentary cultural critics, uh, kept remarking about the ways in which the mainstream media was really propagating these narratives. Remind us of the story because we're talking about the sure. shooting death of Trayvon Martin, sure. a 17-year-old in Florida. In Sanford, Florida. And uh, Trayvon essentially was walking to the store from his home. He was on the phone with a friend and uh, at some point, it comes into contact with George Zimmerman, who is a self-appointed neighborhood watch person. And as a result of that encounter, Trayvon Martin ends up dead. And George Zimmerman, after much protest, finally gets charged in his murder and then goes on trial for his death. And the trial itself begins to be billed the Trayvon Martin trial. And what is interesting about it uh, was that it wasn't another story of a black kid being killed by the police, but instead by somebody in their community who took it upon themselves uh, to decide whether or not Trayvon belonged in the community that he lived in. How did you react to that verdict? My friends and I were watching and we were commenting on how messed up the narrative was. We were commenting on what it meant that in, at that time, in 2013, that we could still be having a debate about whether or not this grown adult was at fault for taking the life of a child or whether that child, in fact, had such superhuman qualities that they could overpower somebody who was twice their size uh, and somehow cause that person harm and therefore cause their own death. 
watching the trial, it was honestly as if Trayvon's character was on trial. It was as if the character and the effectiveness of his parents and their parenting was on trial. And even his friend, the person who was the last one to talk to him alive, uh, was put on trial. And, and she was kind of dis- described as you know, was she a, a witness that was credible because her literacy levels, right, were being questioned? Even with all of that, I think that most of us felt like it was a no-brainer that this adult had killed a child and so therefore said adult would have to face consequences for killing a child. And so when the verdict was announced and Zimmerman was acquitted on all charges, it was like the air went out of the room. I mean, I know for myself, I have a brother who's now 27, 28, and um, he reminds me of Trayvon. I realized in that moment that could have been my brother. And I remember having conversations with my parents about it. And my dad said, no, that would have never been your brother. And I said, why? He's a black kid who lives in this affluent community. um, And really the culture here is shoot first and ask questions later. I know that when that verdict was announced, I couldn't believe that in 2013 that an adult could get away with killing a child and that the rationale for that would be that somehow this child took on superhuman qualities. The other thing that was really, really apparent to me uh, was that as outraged as I was, there was a whole set of people who thought that that was the right decision. And that gave me a lot of pause. Um, you know, growing up on the West Coast, uh, it's te- it's considered to be more liberal or more progressive than other places. Um, and so I was really shocked that even in a place like that, that there could be people saying, yeah, the kid got what he deserved. And he this guy was just acting in self-defense. So what's the impact, though, that it has on you in that moment? I was terrified. I was angry. I was sad for the death of not just this child, but also what I felt like was common decency. And I felt incredibly responsible, not for the death of this child, of course, but what are we going to do about this? Um, but, so, but why you? Why are you responsible for that? Well, I don't know. I mean, as somebody who lives many of these experiences every day, I think that what can happen is that we can do have a few different responses. So one is, that would never happen to me. That's an aberration. Uh, another response is, something has to be done to make sure that this doesn't happen again, because it could be me. Does this explain why you felt a sense of responsibility, though? I mean, millions of people could have that same reaction. I, I think it does. I mean, for me personally, I feel... Very much like like this. So that night when the verdict was announced, I was sitting outside with friends. The entire place went silent. And I watched as after the verdict was announced, person by person came out. It was almost all black people who left. And we couldn't look each other in the eye. There was some feeling for me of just incredible... It was like rage and grief and shame. And I, as I watched each person leave that bar, I thought to myself, this is the burden that we carry every day. 
And it's in moments like this when it becomes most apparent. Uh, but for me, what that verdict said was, your life doesn't have value. Nobody's going to protect you. Nobody's going to stand up for you. Th and that's where the sense of shame absolutely. comes from. Oh, absolutely. I mean, not that I could have done something about it, but mostly that it's more likely that I will experience something like Trayvon's family did. And I'm aware of that every single day of my life. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't have a great time with my friends or um, have joy in my life. But it does mean that every single second of my life, I'm aware of the fact that I'm black and that that has implications for whether or not I live or die. My daily behavior is uh, shaped around keeping myself alive in a different way than human behavior is shaped in. There's things that I avoid doing because I don't want people to misunderstand and therefore take action based on that misunderstanding. Um, every single black person grows up with the speech, right? The speech about how you behave when you come into an encounter with police, uh, how you behave when you come into an encounter with somebody who, you know, has a uh, an agenda, Every single one of us organizes our lives around keeping ourselves safe from racist violence. There's a an odd perception as an outsider in America that America has dealt with or is dealing with its race issues. You know, it's elected its first black president. You know, there was a civil rights movement. You know, a lot, a lot of progress has been made. Earlier this year, I was in Vermont with two dear African-American friends and they were counting white, uh, counting black people. I do that when I'm in Vermont too. <laughs> Is that really a thing? I do that here. I mean, I'll be totally honest with you. I saw, I hung out yesterday here in Sydney for a few hours, and I saw two black people, and I was excited. And like we all did this thing where we were like, "Hey, like, hi." We don't know each other, but we should because we're the only ones here. But why is that a thing? Why do you need to – why is that important? I mean, look, <laughs> my mom's from the South, right? Or she was raised by Southerners, let me say it that way. And you're just taught certain things. Like every time I see black people, I say, what's up? No matter what. I don't care where I'm at. I don't care what I'm doing. And I was taught that growing up. Like anytime you see black people, it is your job to acknowledge their presence. Um, otherwise, you seem uppity or that you're ashamed to be black. I think in particular in environments where there's not a lot of you, it's almost like a requirement. Of course, you have to give love, right? I mean, I did not know this poor woman who I damn near accosted in the bathroom, like, oh, my God, you look just like me, right? Um, and poor thing, I hope she's okay. She was like, hey, girl, you know. But there is something very validating about that, right? Like, I'm not alone. And um, something important about being affirmed and affirming somebody else. Absolutely. It's a thing. You penned a note that you've called a love letter to black people on the night that the George Zimmerman verdict was mm -hmm. handed down. I did. I left that bar and I went home and I was laying in my bed and I just could not stop thinking about Trayvon's family. And I couldn't stop thinking about my own family. And I cried. I cried 
I went to sleep and then I woke up and I cried some more. And ultimately what it came down to for me was for those of us who find a way to survive no matter what, that there's something very powerful about just saying I see you. And no matter what the courts say, no matter what the justice system says, no matter what vigilantes say, no matter what police say, you do matter. So this is like being in the room and counting the other black people. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. what the letter did. I see you and you deserve to be seen. We all do. Um, it's not just black people who deserve to be seen, right? But certainly we all want to live in a world where our presence is acknowledged and valued. And right now we live in a world where some lives matter more than others. Um, and so really where that Facebook post came from was also a reaction and a response to people trying to justify why a child's life was taken. So you finish this post with black people, I love you, I love us, our lives matter. So this post gave ground to what became a, a hashtag, which was sort of adapted from our lives matter to black lives matter which then became a movement. Explain what Black Lives Matter is. It's so many things. I mean, Black Lives Matter started out as a love letter to black people. My sister Patrice put a hashtag in front of it. It was really a way to, for people to follow the conversation. My sister Opal, again, not my biological sister, put together, she said, you know, we should figure out a way for people to be able to engage with this on social media. So many people are active around this, but there's no central place where people can go to get information, to talk to each other, and to do something besides like and retweet and share. And so that's how Black Lives Matter, as a hashtag, as a slogan, as a demand, was born. Um, and then the use of it uh, really reached beyond us very quickly. Um, so, of course, Trayvon was not the last person to be murdered. Uh, and every time a black person was murdered, Black Lives Matter began to be used, right? It was used in demonstrations. It was used in protests. It was used on social media. Um, it was used in schools. And, you know, it was even used on, you know, law and order, Right. Um, it really took off, though, in Ferguson. That was sort of the moment that absolutely. it became the thing. Absolutely. And mostly Black Lives Matter as a slogan and as a demand um, was used by people in Ferguson to express what it is that they were fighting for when Mike Brown was killed. But I think it's important for us to also make sure that we understand that for Ferguson activists, um, there's a way in which Black Lives Matter overshadows the work that they're doing because it became such a, a huge phenomenon and in many ways because they helped to catalyze that. If there wasn't a million news cameras uh, in Ferguson for months and months uh, that was capturing people holding signs that said Black Lives Matter, right, um, who knows what would have happened? Who knows what would have happened with Black Lives Matter and who knows what would have happened with Ferguson, 
there's a way in which Black Lives Matter, the hashtag, gets aligned or becomes synonymous with movement for human rights. And they are connected, but they're not the same. Hashtags aren't movements. What happened in Ferguson was an uprising that helped to spark a movement. Black Lives Matter as a hashtag was something that was able to give voice, common voice, to what it is that people were fighting for. But it in and of itself is not a movement. So in this, you speak of only a portion of the diffuse nature of Black Lives Matter, right? You were the creator of the idea, if you like, but you're not a leader necessarily of the movement. At least there's caution about any sense of leadership. There's a deliberately, I guess, flat structure. Uh, and yet you are held responsible for both good and bad, <laughs> what happens under that name. There's is that a few fair? It, yes and no. Um, what's fair is that leadership looks a bunch of different ways. And we say that we're leaderful. We're not afraid of leadership. Um, leadership is incredibly important, and there's nothing more that we need in the world than leadership. Uh, but at the same time, the models of leadership that we're used to are destructive to what it is that we're trying to fight for. Uh, and here's what I mean by that. Everybody still in 2016 is still looking for the Martin Luther King, mm. right? Who's the one person who's going to tell us exactly the path to take so that we can get a little bit more free? You've said the model of the black preacher leading people to the promised land isn't working right now. Sure isn't. And there's this sort of T-shirt saying, not your, not your grandfather's civil rights movement. That came out of Ferguson, yes. I wouldn't say that we're not leaders. Each and every one of us is exhibiting leadership qualities every time we decide to be courageous enough to defy unjust laws, every time we decide to be courageous enough to put our bodies on the line, uh, every time we decide to be courageous enough to just say, no, that's not actually how it goes, right? And at the same time, we try to be mindful of the fact that we still have a lot to learn in terms of how do we practice a new model of leadership in a world that values destructive models of leadership. Um, and that is something that every social movement that emerges in this day and age is having to grapple with. Occupy has to grapple with it. Uh, the climate justice movement has to grapple with it. The indigenous rights movement has to grapple with it. A lot of parallels have been drawn between Black Lives Matter and Occupy. And the argument goes that what essentially has sort of brought Occupy undone is lack of leadership and lack of structure. Well, it was a it was a lack of acknowledgement that leadership did exist. And so as it was propagating these ideas around flatness and no hierarchy, the reality is that there were people moving things and, and not acknowledging that. And so that creates a level of distrust. I mean, we have the same issues inside of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. This movement, um, of which I am a part, I am not the creator of it, uh, but this movement has been incredibly powerful all over the world. And anytime something has that amount of currency, 
uh, it is incredibly threatening to um, the powers that be and to people who don't want to see change happen. Is there a clear objective for Black Lives Matter? There is. It's a very long-term one. So our objective is to eliminate anti-Black racism and state-sanctioned violence in all of its forms. And that has been our aspiration since the very beginning. Uh, and that takes a bunch of different forms and shapes, uh, which is why I think a lot of people find it kind of amorphous. They go, Oh my God, well, what does that mean? And it's like, oh yeah, no, it's a big project. We're really clear about that. There was this video that I watched, I'm sure you've seen it, of uh, a Black Lives Matter leader on the sidelines of a Hillary Clinton campaign event. I think it was in New Hampshire, uh, where they're having a conversation and she effectively takes him to task saying, well, what do you want? What's the legislative change? What's the program of change? What's the unifying dimension to all of this. Various other interest groups have run campaigns and they've achieved goals by setting them out and being clear about them. And you don't have that. Now, your views of Hillary and her politics aside, what do you make of that argument? A few things. So one, what we have to understand is that um, not everybody works like politicians do. And politicians are really used to saying, okay, well, what's the ask? What's the bill that I can move? Or what's the thing that I can use to champion this agenda if they're interested in that? What has happened since that uh, that encounter, which was incredibly frustrating, mostly because it was incredibly uh, condescending, is a couple things. One, uh, the Movement for Black Lives, of which we are a part, released a document that is a very comprehensive policy document. And I think that many of us have always been clear about what it is that we're fighting for. I think what ends up happening is that when you call for an end to systemic racism, there is no policy that you can enact that will be a silver bullet that does that. Um, and you can hear that even today in Clinton's speeches, right? She's not quite able to talk about how she's going to eliminate systemic racism, but it is a talking point in her campaign, and she should probably thank us for that. Uh, the other thing that you'll see, right, are memos uh, that have been linked recently from the Democratic Central Committee, uh, really talking about how they want to avoid creating policies that uh, Black Lives Matter activists would be in support of. And so a little bit what you see there is kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth. On the one hand, the other comment that was made during that encounter with our BLM Boston chapter uh, was that you don't change hearts, you change policy. But yet when asked about same-sex marriage and marriage equality, uh, the direct quote was, I changed my heart. <laughs> so I think what Black Lives Matter gets right is that in order to have effective policy change, you have to change culture, which is essentially about changing hearts. Uh, and I think that if more politicians got that, uh, we could actually get a little bit farther with the change that we seek. I want to ask you to explain the role of queer rights within the Black Lives Matter movement, if you will. 
I'm going to read you a line from The New Yorker. Gaza's argument for inclusivity is informed by the fact that she, a black queer female married to a trans male, would likely have found herself marginalised not only in the society she hopes to change, but also many of the organisations that are dedicated to changing it. What does that mean? We do not live single-issue lives. I believe Audre Lorde said that. None of us would describe ourselves as only having one type of experience. Um, All of us live many different experiences all at the same time. Uh, So it's not so much for me, where does queerness fit in my blackness? It's that I'm a queer black woman, and that is all of me all the time. And it's really hard for people to get, right? They're like, but are you queer or are you black? And I'm like, look, I don't have a cape that I put on one day and then take it off when I get home and then put on another one. Um, but I, you know, I'm the same person everywhere I'm at. You know, there are always going to be folks who really refuse to interrogate where their limits are. And what I hear in that statement is, I don't understand. Uh, you know, I've heard things like, you know, Black Lives Matter is heterophobic, which is like not a thing. It's just not a thing. I mean, everything in this world is designed around heterosexual people, everything. So there's not really a thing called heterophobia. It just doesn't exist. When you're the majority, there's not a phobia of the majority. There's always a phobia of the minority. Um, But I think what's so interesting about that is that we're not actually a minority. We are um, just not as vocal. Every black person, particularly every black person who will say something like that statement, right? Black Lives Matter is a queer movement masquerading as a black one, has black queer people in their families. All of us are connected in this really powerful way. Um, And we lose out when we don't allow people to show themselves exactly how they are. Mm. And I think that's the point here. A lot is written, though, about the difficulty for uh, black queer people to be queer within the black social community. Because it's seen as being anti-black, because queerness is seen as being a white thing, but it's not – There's lots I could say about that, but that is propagated by the presence of what I call reactionary organized religion. Um, And not all organized religion is reactionary, but there are certainly threads of it that um, at the same time that it preaches kind of universal acceptance and all this other stuff has qualifiers, right? Except for this or except for this. And You know, I'll be honest with you. I think that there's something very profound about the difference between theory and practice. And for me, I want every single person on this planet to be able to determine for themselves what it is they need to be a whole person. And if I believe that and want to live my life that way, then that means that I have to be okay with eradicating the things in me that block other people from being who they are and who they need to be. Um, And that to me is the ultimate aspiration for what it could be like to live in a really, truly free society. 
the sort of riposte to Black Lives Matter has become All Lives Matter. What's your riposte to that? We've never said only Black Lives Matter, but we don't live in a world where all lives matter. And to say all lives matter in a world where we have millions of people who live on the streets, uh, millions of people who are locked in cages, uh, millions of people who have been disenfranchised, millions of people who had their land and their culture has been stolen, is to ignore the world that we live in. And so aspirationally, yes, we want all lives to matter. But in order for us to get there, we've got to make some really significant changes. Right now, black lives don't matter. And if we want to live in a world where all lives matter, we've got to make it so that black lives matter. You're generally unhappy with the state of politics in America. Could politics be for you? If it was a part of a broader strategy of our movement that we had really thought about and don't, organized. Don't, don't, I don't want the PR No, no, I'm being this. really I'm, serious. I'm asking about you personally. No, no, I'm being really serious. No, but this sounds like something that you'd sort of put out in a statement. I, I want no, to hear what I'm you being feel. I'm really serious. This is how I feel. So my training tells me that we have to use every tool that's available to us. And, you know, when you study social movements, when you talk to social movements in other countries, um, like let's look at what's happening in Brazil, for example. The social movements there, the Workers' Party, made a very clear uh, decision that in order for them to advance their agenda, that they needed to actually be a part of governing the country, making the laws, right, making sure that people who were elected were representative of the overall agenda of the movement. We don't have that right now. And so in this context, am I going to run for office in the next six months, six years? No, because we don't have – we're not organized enough yet as a movement um, to really support that kind of strategy. But if we were, I would absolutely consider it. Could you imagine yourself as a representative? Honestly, I can't, but I would if I had to. I My assessment of myself is that I think – that uh, my training as an organizer would allow me to be able to bring many different segments of our communities together. Uh, but I don't think that I would be effective in this current political climate. I have seen too many people at the local level, at the state level, even at the federal level who really wanted to go in as individuals and they were like, I can make a change. And it's like, yeah, totally. Except you have to deal with 435 other people to make one decision. It can't just be you wanting to make a change. It's got to be you plus a whole bunch of other people trying to move a strategy so that we can actually win what we want. So that's kind of where I'm at on that. Alicia Garza, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program headed by Anne Mossop. Our show is hosted by me, Hamish McDonald, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. We're recorded by Jason Blackwell and Oliver Brighton, mixed by Brendan Zacharias. Our executive producer is Danielle Hart.